This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Welcome again to the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast. Tom Oates here, and glad to be with you once again as we share some of the insights, innovations, and lessons learned across the child welfare field. You know, in some way, shape, or form, many within the child welfare field and those who partner or see a need to partner with child welfare agencies have started to take steps to shift the approach in strengthening families and protecting children. Now, these shifts, anything from conversations to how we evaluate programs, policy reviews, to who sits at the table when decisions are being made, and more, they're all part of a migration from traditional reactive child protective systems to those designed to support child and family well-being through a primary prevention approach and to prevent child maltreatment and unnecessarily family separations, right? That shouldn't sound new to anybody, right? The ideas and concepts, they've been discussed for a while, and many agencies are working toward action, such as those implementing prevention plans to align to the Family First Prevention Services Act. But we're now seeing a collective national effort A partnership with the Children's Bureau and three national organizations working across the public, private, and philanthropic sectors to assist jurisdictions in this migration. Thriving Families, Safer Children, a national commitment to well-being, is a joint effort of the Children's Bureau, Prevent Child Abuse America, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and Casey Family Programs. Now, the goal is to assist those local jurisdictions with their efforts to develop just and equitable systems that bring communities together to leverage resources and information sharing to reduce the need for foster care and support families, ideally, before they'd come in contact with Child Protective Services. Now, the effort is working with jurisdictions in specific tiers, or as you'll hear, rounds. And these serve to either as full demonstration sites with intensive technical assistance, and that's round one. Or they'll work to focus on policy and system reform at the local level, that's round two. Or in a a broader sense, to share the lessons and best practices, including those that have been learned from rounds one and rounds two, and that is round three. Well, we're going to spend the next two episodes here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast diving into the Thriving Families effort. We were lucky enough to bring together Dr. Melissa Merrick, President and CEO of Prevent Child Abuse America, Frank Alexander, Managing Director of Judicial and National Engagement Systems Improvement from Casey Family Programs, and Sandra Gasca-Gonzalez, Vice President, Center for Systems Innovation, with the Annie E. Casey Foundation. So this is part one, where we discuss the first-of-its-kind effort and how the partnership formed with these organizations and the Children's Bureau, and how this effort is viewed and implemented as a public health approach, and what states and jurisdictions and their partners can do to help ensure the effort bears fruit and leads to, as the name indicates, families that thrive. 
So now in part two, we will actually dive into executing the national commitment to well-being, both in terms of new approaches to emphasize and suggestions of what agencies may want to consider de-emphasizing as we continue this migration in working with and for the children and families in our communities. All right, let's get to it. Our conversation with Melissa Merrick from Prevent Child Abuse America, Frank Alexander from Casey Family Programs, and Sandra Gasca-Gonzalez from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Sandra, Melissa, and Frank, I welcome you guys into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. And, and Frank, let me start with you really from the beginning I'd be interested to know kind of the the seeds that were planted to to lead to this really unique partnership with with PCA, Annie E. Casey, Casey Family Programs, and the Children's Bureau. How did this come about? Well, thanks, Tom. First of all, for having us all, we're really glad to be here. It's our one of our favorite topics to talk about, and um, I'm really glad here to to be here to talk with you. So, I think first, I just want to uh, acknowledge that I think a lot of our systems have been working for some time to determine how to move forward in a way that's really gonna strengthen families and communities and really build the conditions for for thriving families moving forward. And partly what we've done between the four organizations is really capitalize on that momentum that multiple systems have have been grappling with. And as the Children's Bureau was leading its effort to sort of focus on primary prevention and recenter back on community well-being, Casey Family Programs was also working on a 21st century child and family well-being system effort. Uh, PCA was doing its own uh, work. NEE was doing its work as well. And all of us really turned our lens inward and, and determined that our organizations are some of the most important uh, efforts in the country where we can lock arms and really recenter together in a way that's going to be very supportive of transformational efforts across the country. So we took we took the chance to sort of heed the call that we had heard from families and communities for quite some time to focus on ourselves and our partnerships and really lock arms in a really different way because we, we know that none of our entities can do this work alone and frankly that uh, there are far more partners beyond the four of us that are that are needed and involved in in the effort moving forward, and that's going to be what what brings us uh, to the work in a new in a new way that that really ultimately is is responsive to to families and communities. So, continuing that, uh, where did you know kind of the, the four organizations kind of you know decide? Hey one's got to reach out to another or where everybody comes together. Uh, just where did the, you know, the actual decision to partner come about? I think some of the first conversations, well, Melissa and I were both fortunate to be on detail in the Children's Bureau together. Melissa was working at the CDC at the time. I was working in Boulder County, Colorado, local government. And, and we were becoming involved really early on in some of the prevention work. And I had the good fortune to meet Sandra in the Children's Bureau offices as well. So we, we were able to have some pretty uh, intimate conversations at the time around what our organizational work was focused on. And I think some of the first effort happened between an outreach between the Children's Bureau and Casey family about how can we lock the focus around primary prevention and the 21st century child and family well-being together in a way that's going to bring philanthropy uh, jurisdictions across the country together um, so I think that was really the some of the initial conversations that led to this effort. 
And it's interesting you brought up where you, where each of you were at at points in your in your history because Melissa, if folks were listening, that heard CDC. And so I want to actually touch base on the actual public health aspect of this effort uh, in in a little bit. But first, Melissa, really. And when we were talking before we recorded, the name itself, Thriving Families, Safer Children, a National Commitment to Well-Being, um, there was some serious thought that actually went into the name, into positioning this. And I'm curious, why this name? Why did that come about? Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's a really difficult exercise to try to communicate this energizing, um, intentionally different um, uh, effort to really work across sector, across silo, to partner with families and communities, with philanthropy, with nonprofit, with government. It's really hard to encapsulate all of that in a name. And so backing up a little to um, something that Frank shared, while we were sort of brainstorming what this um, commitment could be, even before it, it became what it is and what it's, uh, you know, turning into be, um, we thought a lot of the shared visioning around what this will be was important. So together across health and human service agencies in government and other partners, we kind of came up with um, sort of a shared vision, which was creating the conditions for strong, thriving families and communities where children are free from harm. Obviously, super uh, mouthful and uh, quite a lot in there. And so, you know, just anecdotally or internally, we kind of called it the proof of concept. We knew that prevention was happening in communities. We knew that some were really um, leading the way and others were wanting to learn from other communities. So we knew all of these things were happening and there were these seeds. Um, So this proof of concept internally kind of helped us to encapsulate what this was. But of course, externally, what does that mean? I mean, really for some of us internally, we don't know what that means. So really it was, well, how do we um, really, again, put words to really capture the breadth and wealth of of things that we were trying to do um, differently in partnership for prevention? Um, And so really thriving families, I mean, the word thriving, I think is so... Um, salient. It's not that we want um, families and children to just get by. We want them to thrive. So that was really important. The C for children um, uh, secondary kind of title really came from the idea that we are uh, uh, and have been a very reactionary system, right? So we really help families once they find themselves in crisis um, to keep kids safe, to keep families strong. And we wanted to really say, no, but when we push for thriving families and communities, we will be keeping kids safer, right? So it was important to kind of meet the field where it is, as Frank says, and, and you'll hear throughout this conversation, I'm sure many, many, many of us and many others have been pushing for this kind of transformed system and a really a new way of looking at prevention, but still our systems are um, situated and funded and supported in this very reactionary child protection focus. So we really wanted um, to show the field how we are balancing these two concepts. It's not um, doing away with child protection um, in support of thriving families. It's thriving families will have safer children. And it's really this national commitment to child and family well-being that we think all of us need to get on board with and to really um, ascribe to and partner with 
to actually change outcomes for children and families, to really help children and families reach their maximum health, life, and prosperity outcomes. So really, that's um, why this name now. I will say, again, I said so much in there, but, you know, names are iterative, right? Maybe at some point um, it will change with the, the movement and the energy behind this national commitment to child and family well-being. Well, it's the first step to creating an identity to the, to the movement itself. You brought up a phrase that we've heard over and over and over again, and rightfully so, of meeting the field where it is. And and that is applied you know, at the national level, at a state level, at a local level, at door-to-door level. Uh, but when it comes to a lot of the efforts toward prevention, there is this, you know, kind of shift in identity or, or reaffirmation uh, of an effort. And Sandra, this really gets into when you talk about meeting the field where it is, meeting the families where they're where they are. And so, you know, I understand that there was a really a, an investment to gather and to listen to the parents and youth with lived experience. And so, in doing so. What did they tell you that helped influence where this effort wants to go? Thanks, Tom. Yeah, um, you know, the, all the partners have been involved in one way or another for years. So not just around this effort, but for years, hearing from families, hearing from parents, hearing from young people about what works for them. And um, it just really has been striking to hear what, especially in, in the world of the work that we do, uh, from young people themselves directly, young people who are transitioning out of foster care and sort of have the system in a rear view mirror um, to be able to tell us what could have helped them, what could have been different. Um, the young people that we work with are the older version of the younger children in the child welfare system that can't speak for themselves because they just don't have the words And these older youth are the voices for them. That's how we see it. And they have their own experiences to to add. So things that I know we've learned from them is that their parents need help way before that first hotline call. And when they get to that first hotline call, it's hit or miss whether they'll get the help that they need or if they'll be offered a service that kind of meets their needs, but they really don't have what's going to address that need for them. And the biggest issue we hear is that too often systems just wait till the third or fourth hotline call when it's a major crisis before reacting to the family. And at that point, it requires a separation because they never got what they needed in community when the first call, second call, or third call happened. And so what really influenced us is that they told us that we needed to see them for their strength and hear them for their solutions. And that's really um the time is now. It, it was sort of this enough is enough. We, we've we been knowing this for a long time. Uh, I think that the pandemic and the, uh, the focus that we've all had working from home has really changed the way that we uh, are behaving. And um, also the racial injustice and the racial tensions uh, over the last year have really led us to be more focused on a lot of these families are the the black and brown families are overrepresented in the system. And um, it's time to hear them and see them. And that's really what led us to this point. There there is this, you know, 
undercurrent conversation that's always been happening, and now it gets a chance to kind of come up to the surface and, and an actual practical application of, okay, what does change look like? And it's a change in, in how, you know, our change in our thoughts, our change in our actions, and a change in the system. Because if you don't change any of those, you're going to be left with the outcomes you currently have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are talking about these, these, these changes, so to speak, or how things are going to be applied differently. And so when it comes to you know, thriving families, safer children, a national commitment to well-being, the way at least we're starting with implementation is various sites and jurisdictions at various levels. And uh, Frank, I know there is this larger group of these tier one sites and jurisdictions could you walk me through the the characteristics of, of, of these kind of of these demonstration or these tier one sites? Absolutely. Um, and I'd say I'd say just to kind of dovetail on what Sandra's saying, I think the first the first characteristic, without question, that's across all four of the initial uh, round one sites, is lifting the voice of community, family, parent, youth experts in driving the transformation that they seek. And I think that that is the commonality, really that's sort of ground one, starting point one in every one of the round one sites, which is a fantastic place to, to, to begin to deepen the work and approach it very differently. Our systems historically have, in their silos, have, have reacted to crises and sort of responded by and be and been driven by crises. But as we want to move to well-being and thriving communities, we, we have to fundamentally approach the work completely differently, which is to not have the silos and the systems drive the work, but have communities and families drive the work. I think that is the first thing. So, so what you're what we're experiencing already, and it's not just with the four jurisdictions, but it's among the four partners and our other partners is how are we going to strengthen the way that we do that? So Sandra named quite a few ways that we're really contemplating that. We, we all have a much deeper commitment around it. I think we've always been committed to it, but I think in this, in this year and in this effort, we know that we have to really redouble our efforts and recenter and, and strengthen and lead from that place in a, in a different way. So I think that is for sure one of the top characteristics. The other is really, uh, centering the work on equity, and and I'd say race equity in particular, which which is also um, has been a goal from the beginning. You know, thriving families as a as a concept was born long before the pandemic began, and long before the the, the calls for for racial justice that we have have seen really loudly ringing across the country this year. Um, and race equity has always been a, a, a significant component of recentering work in communities. But I think the Thriving Families Partnership is, is bringing that to the, to the forefront. And in particular, I think we've been really encouraged by that across the different jurisdictions, which have very different demographics in their, in their sites, right? So we have very different states. We have very different localities. The other thing that I think has been characteristic is a a really strong desire to lift up tribal leadership and tribal connections uh, while we center on race equity. And many of our jurisdictions have uh, large tribal populations or tribal nations uh, within their jurisdictions that are, are, are becoming engaged and helping lead the work in a different way. 
uh, and I'd say even more uh, more strongly than we had imagined a year a year ago. Other components, I think, of of the of the round one demonstrations is really focusing on how systems are siloed in the states and localities in the government, so across governmental systems, but also across philanthropic and nonprofit community-based agencies and how we might recenter that work. So as our federal partners, you know, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Health Resource Services Administration, the Children's Bureau, Housing and Urban Development, and others begin sort of recentering the work back on strengthening families, states and localities and tribes also have to begin to think about that. So we're seeing a lot of focus on uh, bringing the systems to the table and coming at it with a different value, which is the future. The future is not ever going to occur in a siloed system. It isn't going to be driven by one system or the other. The power is in the nexus of systems, in the collaboration across systems, uh, in the integration of systems, because families don't don't live in silos. Youth don't live in silos. Communities are not are not silos. They're they're dynamic ecosystems and we have to we have to begin the the long the long hard work i think across sectors to recenter and break those those pieces apart so that we can reconstruct around around strengthening families and communities because you know resiliency and wholeness and and well-being are centered in communities and families and neighborhoods and the conditions within which uh, they exist and are built and our, our separate silos have exacerbated that challenge uh, for families. And so we, when, when I say turn the lens back on ourselves, we are, we are trying to be very rigorous about that. And we are still in our infancy about what that actually means. But that is a very, very center characteristic for each of the round one, round one jurisdictions. I'm curious to, you know, when you address, you know, it's it's the change at the systems and the systems that work together, but those systems are executed and applied by individuals, right? And so it's it's the at the execution level, as you talk about turning the lens on yourself, how does something like this change the questions that 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 caseworkers, that administrators, that, you know, that even leaders ask because if we go back to like the traditional or the reactive approach the questions that were asked in those systems or the way those systems were applied how different are the new questions that we should be asking when we're executing maybe this shift i think they're com- they're completely different because it's 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 flipping the model up, up upside down on the focus and i think sandra gave a good example of that of just when you speak to youth and parents and families about the trauma that they've experienced in the separation of their families over their life course, they always they always ask, why, why did it take separation for me to get help? Why did it take my removal for my family to access support? So I think what what agencies can do, child protection agencies can do, the hard questions they can ask themselves are, what would it look like if, if, if solving this problem was easier? What would it look like if solving this problem happened much sooner? What would it look like if this family never needed uh, the child protection hotline? And what kind of relationships do 
do I, as a child protection worker, as an agency leader, do I need to build in my community with families, with other partners, with non-traditional uh, players to strengthen families and communities so that what I know are precursors to families becoming deeply involved in my agency are actually addressed uh, sooner, uh, more rapidly with strength and centered on what families, youth and parents are, are asking of us. And it's once you ask the hard question, the answers I think begin to be easier. And we, we, we don't simply look for very deep end institutional solutions that are complicated, that are costly, and that, that oftentimes are adding additional trauma to the experience uh, that a family or a youth or a parent has, has in, in, in the crisis that they're experiencing. And, and this is a lot where that diversity of your partners and and the, and the strength of your partners and your relationships uh, come into play because a lot of times the answers that come from those questions uh, may not be in your own wheelhouse, but they may be within somebody else's. But if you've got that relationship, then everybody is offering something and bringing something uh, to the table. And it kind of leads towards something we hinted uh, a little bit earlier of this public health approach. And, and Melissa, with, with your background and connection and working with the CDC and now with PCA, uh, I'm, I'm curious to how a public health approach, and I put that in quotes, of a public health approach is applied and defined when it comes to this particular prevention effort. Sure. I think what you've been hearing from, from Frank and Sandra and I is all about a public health approach. And I really like... Um, a definition that the Institutes of Medicine put out in the early 90s um, that really defines public health as what we as a society do collectively to assure the conditions in which all people can be healthy. So when you see there, it's what we as a society do collectively, not one silo, one organization, one professional at a time, but all of us together, right? I think the pandemic um, allows us to see public health in action, many of us for the very first time, but it's, it's likening it to, you know, if I wear a mask, but my neighbor doesn't, it's not as effective as if we all do it together so that we can all thrive, right? So it's that approach that's needed in child abuse and neglect prevention always. And that's what this effort really embodies. So it's what we do as a society collectively to assure the conditions. So I think you've heard conditions from each of us now. This is not just, and, and, and you know, reflecting on your last question to Frank, this is not just of, you know, the questions being, oh, what does this family need now in crisis? It's what do all families need all the time to keep them strong, to keep their community strong, to keep them safe and nurtured and thriving before crisis? That's going to help them actually be able to cope with crisis better, to be able to be resilient after a crisis better. It just keeps everything forward moving. That's what we mean in prevention. Um, and, you know, these to assure the conditions in which all people can be healthy and thrive. Again, public health, I think, is about everyone. It doesn't, it is not meant, though, to disappear the groups and communities that we know experience a disproportionate amount of the burden of adversity, of child abuse and neglect, of poverty, of all these other conditions that really interconnect and intersect, right? It's what, it, it's all of that. And so I think the, the decision, you know, 
that this commitment would be around applying a public health approach really came from the fact that public health requires a comprehensive approach. It requires um, all sectors, all people. It really lifts up the fact that we all have a role to play in keeping all children safe and nurtured and secure. And that means keeping families strong, keeping communities strong and thriving. It means um, uh, commitments and efforts at every level of the social ecology. It means individuals, individual families, you know, yes, the parenting skills, the, the coping with trauma, addressing trauma in families, yes. But it also means that a community Having community supports, family resource centers, uh, evidence-based home visiting, uh, uh, services that families can access. It also means efforts at the societal level, right? Uh, uh, livable wage, minimum wage. Uh, these are processes that, that or, or policies even that, that uh, you know, provide economic supports to families. That helps to reduce some of the parental and community stress that's on families, which we know are risk factors for, for child abuse and neglect. So it's really honoring the fact that no one system, no one um, entity, no one organization can take this on alone. Prevention can only happen in partnership. And we are so thrilled to have these four national partners at the helm of really trying to operationalize what this commitment needs to look like. But it's also, there is room at the table for many, many other partners because we need all of us working together creatively, differently, um, transformationally, if we really expect that children and families will thrive. So you've painted the picture, uh, Melissa, of, of where, you know, what it looks like when everybody is at the table. And, and getting the partners and creating that kind of that community, that public health approach and, and the strength in numbers and all the, der- the various partners to recognize, hey, what is it that all families need? And are we providing that at an equitable level uh, for, for, for our community? Um, so that's point B. Many jurisdictions, Frank, however, are still at point A. What does it look like in helping those jurisdictions kind of move from that traditional reactive system to one that really supports child and family well-being and prevention? And that's a tough question because it really is, okay, we've all got the, the, the goalposts in mind, but how do we march it down the field? What does this look like in terms of transforming either an agency or, or, or a jurisdiction? Well, I think the first the first thing is, is that we are also the four national partners and, and the partners that we work with, we are also doing this work. So we are committed to doing this work with jurisdictions, with families and communities, because we know that we have to operate differently. If we want to see transformation, then we have to operate transformationally. And I think Although that sounds relatively basic, it's it's very complicated, and it's it's one of the most important things that we can do if we want to shift uh, from reactivity to to proactivity and strengthening families and communities. And and it's to stay together, to lock arms, and actually to relish the discomfort that we're starting to experience because it is it is discomfort that has been necessary for quite some time. And we have to own it. And so 
one of the most important things I think that we will see in the round one jurisdictions and with the four partners, and frankly, with the round two jurisdictions of which we have an enormous desire to join the Thriving Families Safer Children momentum, is continuing to support each other, to be uncomfortable, to have hard conversations, to stay at the table, to roll up our sleeves and to work together because collaboration is the the beginning, but then we must develop shared vision, shared strategy. And those, those shared efforts require us to begin sort of the difficult process of disassembling some of our work and reconstructing it with families and communities at the, at the center. And, and I think subtle things like when, when we folk, when we say child protection is our North star, right. Then we, we focus on protecting children and we end up unfortunately protecting children from their families. We don't actually strengthen families and, and keep children safe with, with their families. So recentering on child and family well-being is a fundamental shift of our North Star. So moving, moving from reactivity to proactivity means, means understanding that we do have a different North Star. It's not simply protecting a child. It's, it's building thriving families and communities and centering child and family well-being together. And once we see that that North Star is shifting, then our over-reliance on the child protection system to really solve these root problems, these community problems, these population level problems will begin to shrink and our focus will, will rightly move to where, where it needs to be. And I think we, once we can commit to that collective discomfort, and I think this is going to be one of the biggest things that all of us on the four partners on the call, um, you know, have to stay centered on is, is we want to encourage our teams, our people, our partners to, to relish the discomfort and not run from it because silos are built oftentimes when people run from each other because the discomfort of working together, facing difficult issues like uh, racial injustice, race inequity, egregious disparities, uh, egregious levels of poverty, community conditions that, that, are, that are causing the disparities that we see. When we run back to our silos and then sort of build reactive systems where we can, quote, control the outcome within those systems, we, we will never, ever achieve what families and communities and youth and parents have been asking of us for so, for so, so long. So I see that as one of our most, most critical uh, steps in this work right now. There's an aspect of, of asking questions, right? But it's very, very difficult when you ask the questions of yourself to challenge yourself. And, and Frank, you brought up, you know, turning the lens on yourself because it's, it's, it's very easy to point out things you think are wrong over there. It's very difficult to recognize when things are wrong, when you're looking in the mirror. And that's kind of the place to just start with everything and question everything. You guys had mentioned that clearly the, the pandemic and everything that 2020 brought us, uh, you know, kind of brought a lot of this to light, but that, that the effort itself, there had been the groundswell and the seeds beforehand. But I am curious of how the pandemic itself may have shifted or influenced the effort as, as the momentum was really building over the past number of months. I'm going to kick that to Sandra to start, and then I could, I could follow up. I would just say that, you know, we there was a lot of groundswell from the beginning, and 
it was the pandemic that caused us to think a lot about what we should be concerned, worried about in terms of child protection. And uh, there was a lot of talk about what does it mean when we're not laying eyes on children? What does it mean in terms of their safety? What are some of the things that we should be concerned about? And there was an assumption that was made that, um, you know, children are in harm's way. And there were also issues related to budgetary cuts for the states. There were a number of of technical issues just transpiring around the pandemic. And it was us really thinking about, um, is this the moment for us to think about how to do our work differently? Is this the time to actually walk our talk and do differently and behave differently and we thought, you know what, there is no better, there is no better time to do this than right now. Um, and it, and I, I have to be honest and say that it's not just the pandemic; it's the racial injustice. It, it's all of the murders that we saw of uh, black men and women that we were zoned in on in this time of loss in this country from all the deaths of the pandemic and the fear of what is going on with our families and our communities and what what's available. So it was it was a lot of that that really led us to think about despite this many people would have said this isn't the time. This isn't the time, but we found that it was there was no better time than right now to launch. And if I may just jump in um to here to just echo what Sandra is sharing and just to share personally, as a mom of two young kids, um, very fortunate to be able to work from home and have internet connection and have two um, uh, uh, employed parents. You know, it, the stress is so high, even in my own family. But when we add on and layer on job loss, housing instability, childcare um, unaffordability, unavailability. Um, and, and all the other things, the loss, the grief, the, the trauma that we are all experiencing, this is a time that, that we all as national partners, but just as, as citizens and as humans um, in this country and in this world, recognize that the moment has to be now for us to do differently and, and to support families um, differently than we ever have. There's a fierce urgency in this moment um, to not wait until we have all of the funding and appropriations and, and all of that figured out. Yes, we need resources. We need financial resources and people resources and all the resources to help this really thrive. But we cannot wait to figure that all out. We are so, I think all of us used to um, it taking a whole long t- a lot of time to figure out those things before anything happens. So for many of us, We've already been talking about this. The field has been talking about this for years. So if not now, then when? Um, When we know that our families are under uh, tremendous, tremendous stress. And I would just like to add, though, that, you know, I think there is a lot of concern about children's safety in this time um, where they are not in school in the in the traditional way, right? We don't have those kinds of protective eyes on children and families. But we know surely that most families are not hurting their children. They are just trying to do the very best they can do 
in, in the very best ways and using the very best tools that they have, then it then has to become our charge to help support those conditions, help to support the, the, the tools that, that all families and communities have in their toolbox to really, again, be able to weather this and future storms. So I just think that there's fierce urgency in this moment, and that's why now. And I would just add, Tom, the one thing that I think is I'm incredibly grateful to the partners for the work that preceded uh, th this year uh, with, with the COVID pandemic and, and the, the calls for, for racial justice, because uh, those, th those issues, those calls have, have only clarified our commitment, have only doubled us down on the commitment to move forward together in a different way. And I think disasters do this. You know, disasters bring bring out what's always been underneath the surface to the surface, and they provide an opportunity for us to really think about broad-based solutions in a different way. Having been involved in a, a number of huge environmental and economic disasters in the past, uh, and having to do community work in the context there, you see communities can either come together and rebuild better, rebuild differently, and recenter on strengthening families, or they fall they fall apart. And coming out of out of the disaster takes takes sometimes decades. So I think one commitment that we all need to kind of double down on is that moving through this pandemic and the subsequent economic repercussions of it, and the and the burden and the stress that it's bringing to communities and families, requires us to to, to seize this opportunity and move this work forward at the accelerated pace that this window does give us. It's, we, we, this is a, a once in a, in a generation opportunity for us to really move systems forward at rapid speed. And I think the pandemic has given us that not only urgency, but, but desire and opportunity. So that's just half of the conversation. In part two, we discuss the roles of the national organizations and how agencies and caseworkers can best prepare. And with partnerships such a critical element, we also discuss what makes a good partner. And that goes for those in the child welfare field as well, what agencies should be doing to be good partners themselves. Plus, how to keep families and the lived experience as a continuous influence in the work and the plans moving forward. It's a great continuation of the conversation. So now if you head over to this episode's webpage on childwelfare.gov, we'll have links to each of the organizations and other resources supporting the shift toward primary prevention, along with materials that support transforming systems to become more equitable and just. Again, my thanks to Melissa Merrick from Prevent Child Abuse America, Frank Alexander from Casey Family Programs, and Sandra Gasca-Gonzalez from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Hey, so look out for our next episodes. Of course, you can find the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Subscribe and get all of our episodes sent right to you. Thanks again for your time and, and being part of this community on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families.
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.